Hello there and welcome to a brand new episode of the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is George Breer, I'm a Senior Content Manager here at Sports Pro and as ever I'm delighted to be sat opposite Mr Tom Bassam, Sports Pro's News Editor. Tom, it's good to have you on the show as always. Good to be here George, good to be here. Now alongside us today we have a man who is more valuable to this podcast than Kylian Mbappe is to Al Hilal if reports are to be believed but Sam, welcome back. Cheers, George. Thanks for having me back. You can tell the rest of the editorial teams on leave, can't you? Weird, isn't it? Because this time, like seven days ago, we were talking about what a glorious weekend of sport we just had. And, uh, you know, seven days on, here we are sitting after what was a pretty miserable weekend of sport, really, in the UK least anyway i know i feel like i'm the first person or maybe the only person across the country that managed to simultaneously spend their entire weekend on accuweather checking forecasts but also getting sunburned <laughs> somewhere where i wish there there was no sun there was rain and instead i could transport those rays up to manchester but uh, I'm, I'm going through the stages of grief i'm in denial currently it didn't happen we go to the Oval this weekend. The Ashes are still live at 2-2. And uh, I'll update next week when I go into the severe depressive state. Oh, me. I was actually uh, talking about the Open, but uh, <laughs> cheers for referring back to cricket. It's very much the end of the, the British sporting summer now, isn't it? The Open's wrapped up. Wimbledon is over. The Ashes is pretty much finished. The British Grand Prix's gone. We're now just like this tedious pre-season tournaments and the like to look forward to. I guess we do have the Women's World Cup, I should say. I don't know if either of you gents checked out the Lionesses' first match on Saturday. Well, I didn't check out the Lionesses' first match because I was too busy gloating about my correct prediction from last week's podcast, seeing New Zealand winning their first game of the tournament, despite Sam saying it had been many years since they had done a similar feat. But I did catch that. I have caught a few of the other games. A gripping 1-0 win over Haiti. Did you also catch New Zealand losing to the Philippines this morning? It's denial, Sam. That's the second <laughs> stage, uh, as I've talked about already. So, no, no, I haven't, unfortunately. But when they win their third game and they go through to the knockout stages, as I predicted, I'll be <laughs> enraptured and tuning in from wherever I am. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll film an apology for you, George. Don't worry. <laughs> now, it's been a... Um, the, the, the summer may have close the door on many of our favourite sporting events, but it has only opened the door to a raft of media news that's been doing the rounds. Tom, let's start with TNT, the new BT Sport, or the evolution of BT Sport. So for those that may be less familiar with the story than us tech geeks and media geeks, can you give me a quick summary? Yeah, sure. So TNT is the brand which Warner Brothers Discovery has chosen for BT Sport, which it's Entered into a joint venture with BT Group last year. TNT Sports is one of the Warner Brothers media brands in the US, broadcasts the NBA in the US, uh, and they're now bringing that over to the UK market to be the new brand of BT Sport. So from next year, it's no longer going to be BT Sport 1, it'll be TNT Sport 1. This was kind of all known a few months ago, but what Warner did last week was announce a few more updates to this. The main one being that TNT Sports is going to be available on Discovery Plus, which is the Warner Brothers Discovery big generalist streaming hub. And that there's going to be a big old price hike for those that want it. So you can currently get Discovery Plus in the UK for like $6.99 a month, which has been great for me during the Tour de France. But uh, if you want to get the TNT channels included in that from now, it's going to be uh, 30 quid a month, roughly. A serious price hike. Although that is actually similar in price to what BT sport digital subscribers pay now so they'll get 
people who do that and migrate over will get all of the previous BT Sport stuff they had, plus Eurosport Discovery sports content that they were getting on Discovery Plus. That is the premium price for Discovery Plus now. It's gone way up, but obviously it's got way more, including obviously one of the more valuable properties in the UK market, live Premier League games, which BT has the rights to. Now, Sam, Tom mentioned off the bat that this is the evolution of their joint venture between the BT Group and Warner Brothers Discovery. Given the changes, the rebrand, very much in line with the Warner Brothers Discovery side of things, very much building into an existing ecosystem, it feels a little bit more acquisition-based than it does joint venture. So can you run me through what the terms of the joint venture are and how that kind of operates? Yeah, so the joint venture, initially, I think, basically both companies have a 50% stake in the combined entity, and Warner Brothers Discovery essentially pays £93 million to essentially take over BT Sport, or I guess the joint venture part of it. But yeah, and then there's a chance they'll pay up to 540 million if certain conditions are met. And I think there's sort of a period where Warner Bros. Discovery can essentially complete a full takeover of BT Sport over the next few years. And once that period expires, BT can basically go out and either look to bring on other partners and seek investment or sort of sell the business to another independent operator instead. So yeah, as you say, it does feel very much like Warner Bros. Discovery as they are now are the ones driving this. As you said, it's sort of TNT Sports is a new brand here in the UK, but it's already familiar to people in the US and in, in Latin America as well, where that channel already operates. I think you also kind of framed in the wider context as well, I think it was just a couple of weeks ago that BC announced that Philip Janssen, who's their CEO, he's going to be stepping down in the next 12 months. And he essentially played a really big part in BT's decision to sort of scale back its investment in sports, not to kind of relinquish the rights that it had, but to essentially not to go further into the space, instead kind of make do with what it had and also start to double down on its sort of core business and focus on the rollout of its 5G and full fiber. So his departure kind of suggests that this period that he's sort of done his job, this period for BT is kind of in the rearview mirror now and it's kind of it's, it's definitely going to be the warner bros discovery side of things we're going to be sort of driving this this new era with tnt sports as, as the brand kind of headlining it tom we heard from louis silverwasser in new york when we were out for the ott summit in march of this year and he was very much a champion of the bundling movement towards bringing together the, their sports and entertainment offering under one platform, under one roof. And this feels like a very important and pretty seismic move for its UK market to bring that together. And as a play to really double down on some of their core properties and some of their core platforms. Has there been any indication or any wider coverage of how this is going to work from a practicality point of view? Is this a new subscription and a new ecosystem that customers are going to have to transition to independently? Or is there going to be a sort of a technical migration, I guess, between your BT subscription and moving over into the Discovery Plus element? The indications are currently that the the migration is going to be a wind down of the current BT Sport app and it's going to shut completely. So there's not going to be a direct migration of this app becomes this app and your subscription rolls over. It's going to be more of a kind of, you were previously a BT Sport subscriber, why don't you come and join Discovery Plus? That's going to be that transition, which is a little bit harder to do, I think, like getting someone to unsubscribe from one thing or tell them that that's shut down and move over to another thing is a bit more of a difficult transition than simply just rolling over their deal and bringing them into the uh, existing user base for that. But I don't think it's 
impossible either, given the offers that will probably be on the table for people that do that. I expect there to be a fairly decent migration, given that, as I said previously, like the, the offer is quite good. You're going to get what you had previously on BT plus all of this extra stuff, regardless really of what you think of like the Discovery Entertainment. You're going to get all of that Eurosport content that you weren't getting with just your BT app subscription built into Discovery Plus. And Discovery Plus is improving as a platform like as someone who's used it quite heavily for the last month or so watching the tour like there's some really nice new features on it there's a timeline feature where you can go back and watch key moments the sort of usability in ux is is, is improving yeah it'd be interesting to see whether or not they bring over some of the other stuff that bt had in their app more like their bells and whistles features like different camera angles in the stadium for their games but i think like in terms of like a migration it's going to be a fairly kind of manual process of moving people from this from this thing to this from one product to the other looking at some of those technical features bt sport probably does stand apart from some of the other major streamers when it comes to the the user experience they have quite a lot of what was that alternative broadcast mode you can go into i think there's manager mode the stadium experience as you say there's the opportunity to sort of click into highlights through the timeline and it's usually pretty strong in terms of reliability latency etc do you see those elements coming across into the discovery ecosystem or do you think it's just simply a, a customer acquisition ploy? I think probably when it comes to all of this stuff, we've seen a period of big spending in streaming services. And actually, I think probably right now, Warner Media's thinking, and like I can't profess to have any in, any inside info here, but like just generally, I think the approach has been with this stuff to make sure the core product works first and get that going before you try and add too much. And actually, if people really are coming over to watch live sport, then give them a few features, but you don't need to chuck everything at them. And if that's going to cost a lot of money, and Warner already spending a lot of money on this deal, then maybe I think probably it's going to be a bit more of a basic product, but I think that's okay. Given the strength of the offering, I think you'll get users anyway. I'm not sure how many people are going to be put off signing up for Discovery Plus because it doesn't have manager mode. I think it's... Interesting what Tom said there. Josh Sim, one of the writers here, he went along to the basically the launch event for TNT Sports. And I think Andrew Georgie was basically saying that I don't think he was going into too much details in terms of which features will come across and which way and that'll sort of play out. But as you say, that timeline one was a really popular one as part of the BT Sport app. So I think as Tom mentioned, if that's already kind of present for Discovery Plus already, that's kind of a natural one that people will see already. One of the most interesting comments was Andrew Georgie was basically saying they're gonna kind of start build up to certain events on discovery plus so the sort of the show before the live event so i think that's quite an interesting way that they'll be kind of driving audiences to the streaming platform especially because you know people can still buy the tnt sports package as part of their sort of sky deal or their bt deal or whatever it's not only through discovery plus and they're going to be able to access that but i think that element of kind of putting some programming exclusively on discovery plus would be an interesting way of driving customers to the platform and getting people to engage with it because that's ultimately what this is all about it's about driving and engagement with discovery plus and sort of making it that go-to destination in the uk for everything and i think like that's the interesting side of it because sky has never really had a rival in that perspective you know like bt has never really had the same sort of original programming that sky does for example whereas with one Bros discovery coming in and with discovery plus becoming now the home of things like premier league football champions league football on top of the wider entertainment offering it has and Eurosport. that's a potential challenge that sky hasn't necessarily had before so i think it'd be interesting to kind of see how that plays out given the relationship between those two over the past sort of 10 years that's something that they do with their cycling that they'll have 
pre-race and post-race programming that as sam said is exclusively on discovery plus and cycling is a very different audience to football but people will stick around and watch that it's become quite a big feature of what they do there it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and whether or not that strategy works when, when it comes to their other sports programming like historically warner hasn't had the best time of doing football like it had a bit of a failed experiment in germany doing Bundesliga. It's been a bit more successful in Denmark. It's not known for those uh, for that kind of premium product. So I think quite a lot of the retained staff that they have from BT will be key in making it work. I think Wimbledon do something similar, but they have additional sort of wraparound programming that is only available on iPlayer when the linear channel moves on from maybe the live broadcast itself. So it'll definitely be interesting to see that happen. Sam, you referenced earlier on the motive from BT Sports' perspective to seek the partnership and also need to be amenable to the partnership with some of the economic challenges that they've faced with the sports market. And we'll come on to a few other broadcasters that are facing similar challenges. How important do you see the inclusion of the entertainment offerings, as you say, that additional wraparound content that comes with a live sport to make the economic work, to bring that critical mass to the platform and to bring those subscriber numbers to make this economically viable? I don't know if that was the motivation from a BT perspective. The BT motivation was essentially to offload what was essentially a loss maker for its business and, and focus on its core products. I guess you have to I sort of flip that on the other side. The motivation for Warner Bros. Discovery really was to acquire all of this live sport, which is so important to people in the UK. I think a lot of, you know, maybe we'll talk about some of these broadcasters in a moment, but it's become quite clear over the last few years that you're only really relevant as a broadcaster in the UK if you have either Premier League or Champions League football. So in entering this joint venture with BT, rebranding as TNT Sports and bringing all of those premium rights into that ecosystem and being able to to broadcast that coverage on Discovery Plus, that's so, so important for, for the growth of that platform in the UK, I think. You know, that wider entertainment offering sort of is what it is, as Tom sort of alluded to as someone who's used the platform quite a lot. I think a lot of people still go to that platform either for its coverage of the Tour de France or now they'll be going to that platform for its coverage of the Premier League and the Champions League and then that kind of wider entertainment offering as that's built out, that will be something that sort of becomes a little bit more valuable as part of that subscription, I think, which is kind of, I guess that's reflected in the pricing tickets as well, right, that they've, they've rolled out. You know, I think the basic subscription, which is, I think that's entertainment only, isn't it, Tom? That's only three ninety nine or something per month. And then obviously you add on Eurosport, it's like five ninety nine, and then with TNT Sports included, it goes up to 30. So that's that's the value they're placing on all that stuff that they've acquired. It's, it's in their opinion, worth £24 more a month to each individual user. So... There's a flexibility there as well, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, I think like in terms of the economics of this, you have to just look at like Sky. Do you sign up for Sky to get the entertainment offering? Maybe. You have been badgering me to watch Succession. I have. This is very true. Um, but, I mean, the real value in Sky... Like I think for most people is the sports stuff, right? Like, and I, maybe I'm one-eyed on this because that's where, like, that's my interest in it. But I don't think, I think that's that's what, I think most people would say that's what Sky's been built on as a business is the fact that it had the Premier League. So that's probably the play here, I think, for, for Warner. What happens in a few years' time when Warner Media's contract with Sky for all of the HBO stuff, so Succession being one, New Game of Thrones spin-offs, et cetera, what happens with, with that when that contract expires in a few years' time with what then happens with Discovery Plus? I think, yeah, that could be a bit of a line in the sand for Sky and, uh, and Warner. Like, 
it could potentially be a bit more of a, uh, a close battle because their entertainment offerings may then be a bit more aligned. Currently, Sky has a, has a deal with, with Warner. I think it's for the next couple of years. I don't know exactly. But then you'd say maybe their entertainment becomes a bit more of a parallel. I'm not sure how many people are signing up for Discovery Plus to watch Gold Rush or Your Home Made Perfect or Shark Week. Like You seem to know the programming quite well, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I've been a Discovery Plus subscriber for the last couple of months, so and I'm familiar with it. And it's not something that I'm going on there for. I'm going on there to watch the Tour de France and I see it advertised that I'm not that interested in watching anything else. Well, fans of the film Step Brothers will know that Shark Week is actually quite an important pull <laughs> when it comes to programming. Let's look at another broadcaster that's been in the news over the past week or so, Fireplay, and their decision to exit several markets, some of which they've recently entered. So pulling out of the UK, the US, and the Baltics, as well as announcing they'll be cutting 25% of their workforce instead to focus on their core markets in Nordics and Netherlands. Sam, do you want to talk me through a little bit about how that story is coming about? Yeah, so it's kind of played out over the last couple of months, really. So the first signs that things weren't going very well was a change of leadership, wasn't it? I think their CEO departed, brought someone else in to replace him. And that, that CEO had been in place for quite, I can't remember his name, but I think he'd been in place for quite, Anders Jensen, he'd been in place for quite a long time. So obviously um, a lot of this, I, I think you could call it aggressive expansion, really, that they were pursuing would have been pushed and led by him. So he was ultimately accountable. But um some of the sort of coarsely financial results they were posting weren't hitting the targets that they'd set themselves. Clearly, the subscriber numbers they were seeing weren't meeting expectations either. And that sort of culminated all last week in this announcement that they're kind of essentially re-strategizing, doubling down on their core core markets in the Nordics and the Netherlands, and essentially, yeah, as you said, withdrawing from the UK, the US, and the Baltics, or at least scaling back very significantly. And it's kind of surprised that it's come so soon because... It was only in November last year that they launched in the UK after really quite a splashy entry into the market, I suppose you could call it. You know, they acquired Premier Sports, which got them rights to La Liga, United Rugby Championship, Top 14. They also acquired UEFA national team rights, which I thought was quite a savvy move, actually, because it got them rights to Scotland, Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland qualifiers in the UK. And I mean, you know, qualifiers might not seem like the biggest deal but for those countries who don't always make it to those major tournaments like those fans are really really engaged with that qualifying process so it was probably seen as something that was going to drive people to the platform and then also i think they got some nhl rights as well but even when you kind of compare that to the way they expanded in the netherlands the netherlands they went out and got formula one rights headlined by max verstappen who is the world champion he is dutch so obviously kind of a tier one sort of property essentially in that market they also got darts rights, Michael Van Gogh and darts is really popular there. They also had Premier League rights in the Netherlands. So like various premium properties that are sort of going to drive subscriptions. Whereas here it felt like quite an odd mix that was actually appealing to the core audience of that particular sport. And it was never going to kind of move the needle. You're only really relevant as a broadcaster in this market if you have Premier League or Champions League rights. Combining what they had, I think the entertainment offering kind of like focused on the Nordic originals and stuff so yeah i mean it's a surprise that it's happened so soon the decision to withdraw after less than a year but at the same time not massively shocked given sort of the fairly limited portfolio that they did have 
Yeah, there's some interesting things in the in the Viaplay timeline. Peter Norland, who was the head of sports, actually he left and has now come back again. I interviewed him a couple of years ago and asked him quite a lot about like the strategy for that expansion. He talked me through like how to build a rights portfolio or how they saw building a rights portfolio. And it was what Sam said. It's add a premium motorsport property, add the biggest football property, make sure you've got like the properties that are big in that market. And then in the UK, it seemed like they didn't really follow that template and they did something different arguably you could say that they tried to they got the as sam said the national team rights for those countries they also got corresponding rugby rights so if you're a rugby and a football fan you could watch those like regional properties in the uk and la liga as well but i mean i think one of the things we've learned in the last five ten years is that la liga is not a needle mover in, in the uk at all people really don't watch it that much they only really care about real madrid and barcelona then itv had a deal to show those like classico matches or a lot of the itv rights that would feature those two teams so if you wanted to watch them you could watch them on commercial free swear there's a reason it was on premier sports basically yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it did seem like an aggressive expansion i think they were probably hit as well by the sort of advertising market downturn and people cost cutting and looking at the things that they would wanted to spend money on and decided that a- another pay tv sports service wasn't going to be it so it's not really a surprise that they've pulled out i think that kind of one of the things as well is Sky obviously renewed that. They did that big deal with the EFL earlier this year. Viaplay was said to be interested in that. If they'd secured those rights, that would have probably been a completely different ball game. But clearly they didn't come up with the package that the EFL wanted and Sky ultimately did. I think the, the other sort of flip side of this as well is that we're going to see a much depleted pool for the Premier League rights when it comes to that tender, which is coming up imminently. I think the Premier League had been hoping that Buyer Play and others would still be in the market. And now that's seemingly not going to be the case. Yeah, the the numbers were pretty stark, I think, from the previous um, quarterly announcements. Loss of a, a million subscribers, bringing the overall number down to 6.6, a pretty sizable and meaningful percentage of their overall subscriber number dropping, operating loss of around the 100 million mark. However, on the back of that announcement, it has been announced that Canal Plus will be acquiring a 12% stake. So do you see there being scope for a re-entry into those markets, potentially with a bit of financial backing? I think the Canal Plus thing is more connected to the Polish market, where, again, they've kind of gone in quite hard with a, with a big entry. They had the Premier League rights there. Uh, Canal Plus is a, is a big player in the Polish market. So I think it's more about just tidying up that area than lining up a potential return. I think probably it feels like Viaplay have got their fingers burnt a little bit over the last year or so. As Sam said, banking on that kind of niche Nordic noir entertainment content. I mean, like, admittedly, very popular entertainment, but in relation to other um, <laughs> other regional drama, but <laughs> definitely not. Uh, Personal favourite? Uh, uh, big fan of the bridge. And, yeah. And the Borgen as well. I mean, I can rattle through a few if you want. Please do. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it's not. It's not like it's not the same as having all of the Harry Potter films or big major movie franchises sitting in your back pocket in the way that the other big entertainment streamers do. They overstretch themselves and they're kind of having to eat the, eat humble pie. Well, as you said, uh, that news is probably not great to, to Richard Masters and the, the team of the Premier League looking at the upcoming uh, right sale. But nor is Apple's um, announcement that they've made their senior vice president, LEQ, essentially saying that they have no interest in partial rights in specific markets, but want global not quite exclusive, but certainly globally covering rights moving forward, very much involved with the two and a half billion 10-year deal that they've signed with the MLS. What was your take on that, Sam? 
I was quite surprised by how open ADQ was in that interview, actually, because Apple was like a notoriously secretive business. Like he wasn't cryptic at all, didn't leave anything to the imagination, unless this is all like a massive bluff, some sort of public sparring or whatever. But I do think what he said kind of confirms what a lot of people sort of suspected about Apple and its intentions in sport. What he said, essentially, it rules out almost like every major rights holder really sort of with upcoming upcoming media rights deals because no sport really is structured or its media rights deals are not structured in the way to do a global deal. MLS, for example, basically timed it so it's national broadcast deals, but also it's individual club local broadcast deals were expiring at the same time so that it had the option of offering a streaming platform all of those rights at once. Whereas you take Italy, for example, they've obviously got their domestic deals expiring in 2025, some of their international deals expiring in 2025, but then they've got others that expire in 2028. So it was interesting what he said. Again, not that much of a surprise. And to be honest, I don't know if it will upset the Premier League that much or worry them too much. I think there's still kind of enough interest there. You feel like this might be one of the last chances for the zone to kind of really make their entry into the market and they were probably the most realistic drivers of increasing value plus the premier league sort of reported to be offering more games in its next media rights cycle so that in itself should drive value even if it's kind of less money per game it should drive the overall total so yeah, kind of interesting comments, but at the same time, not all that surprised. I don't know if that was the same for you, Tom. Yeah, I, th- I had a few thoughts on this, actually. I think it will impact the market for the Premier League. I think the Viaplay thing and the Apple thing coming in the same week, that'll be a bit of a downer for them. But as you said, the zone can maybe come in and offer that threat that they need to drive up or at least to drive interest in that tender process. I think we'll probably see the overall cost per game of the Premier League go down because they're going to increase the number of games being offered. So TNT, Amazon... And as you said, design are probably going to come in for that and and look to snap up some of those games. I don't know whether or not the Premier League would want to have four broadcasters showing its game domestically. I, I just don't think like that's great for them because it means that you're asking your customers or your fans uh, to, to pay more to, to watch what they want at a time when people are really trying to not do that. So yeah, I, I don't know whether or not it would go for that, but I think we're definitely going to see more games being offered. So I think the overall cost per game for the Premier League go down, even if the amount they take in domestically could go up the second kind of thing on this is like this is what apple wants and it's those global rights deals right like where they get to control everything and this is something that like i actually had a conversation with someone a few years ago about is like maybe this is the way that a big tech company would want to do kind of any deal but it's like what would work for that or like what like what tier one property does work for this like who, who would be prepared to maybe do it apart from mls so Really, like the Premier League leads on overseas rights because it does these big deals all over the world. But like plenty of the other European leagues really don't do that. They don't really generate that much income from their overseas rights. So maybe someone like Serie A, maybe someone like, maybe not La Liga, but like Liga, potentially even the Bundesliga, might be interested in saying, all right, you can take everything outside of our home market. And maybe Apple would be interested in that. That would make a lot more sense to them. I mean, they might want the home market as well. That's obviously really valuable. But if you've got everything outside of the home market, then that's still pretty good for a property of that size. The other thing I thought about was like, if the Premier League did want to do this, what would the price be? Because like, currently the Premier League's combined deals, I think they're worth like this 12 billion over the course of the cycle. So 6 billion from domestic, 6 billion from international. How much would Apple have to pay in order to do that with the Premier League? Like, I don't think it's going to be a straight cost for cost. It would have to be a hell of a lot more considering you're factoring in that 
you're going to lose a certain number of eyeballs because people won't all move over to Premier League season pass, whatever it is. So, yeah, I'd be interested actually to hear your thoughts on what kind of price point you think that would be. It's hard to speculate on that, isn't it? Like, you'd imagine that in the same way as MLS, there'd be that sort of upfront fee and then there'd be some sort of revenue share in terms of the number of people that are signing up to the platform. But it's, it's also interesting because I think like been, everyone always comes back to this idea of whatever it is, like Prem Flips or, you know, famous Simon Jordan talk sport suggestion where he says, why didn't the Premier League just, uh, you know, launch his own streaming service, get everyone to pay? And it's like, that's going to be more money than their rights to as well at the moment. I guess what's never sort of factored into those conversations is the intense cost of building that platform, upkeeping that platform, marketing that platform, et cetera, et cetera. Why not, after the next cycle, do that in partnership with one of these massive streaming players who has like the technological capabilities to maintain a platform like that? Apple's getting experience in doing it at the moment with MLS. You know, rather than sort of constantly saying the Premier League needs to launch the product, why can't it do it in partnership with you know a similarly market leading brand? Because going back to Eddie Key's comments, I, I don't think that Apple needs the Premier League in the same way that a Sky or a TNT Sports does, unless it's being offered something like that. So if you think about it, like it's so easy in these conversations to think of Apple, to think of Amazon just as sports broadcasters, and when in reality it's like such a not a tiny part, it's just part of their wider business. You know, Apple has like a 50% market share of mobile phones in this country. There's, there's more than a million of a million subscribers to Apple TV as it is in the UK. That's like already a, a significant portion of this population that's engaging with Apple products outside of live sport anyway. So, um, so yeah, it's kind of, it completely makes sense what Eddie Q said. But yeah, sorry, going back to what you were saying, Tom, I think like the next evolution because kind of not leagues themselves launching these D2C platforms. They have to maintain themselves, but moving away from that and kind of doing it in partnership with one of these streaming players with the technology behind them to sort of maintain it. Yeah, it's, it's probably where it probably is where this is going, especially as all of these major media companies go more D2C themselves. Like we're seeing ESPN like actively talking loudly about how the fact that they are transitioning to being a D2C like media company as opposed to being a like a cable product so again I had disney another one that could potentially come in and be like here's 20 billion we, we want all of your media rights globally everywhere that's the cost and then they get to be i don't know they're then getting access to like the number one sport in way more markets than just the uk i mean like one of my favorites indonesia right 250 million people the premier league is the number one sport if you own the rights to that and you can find the right way to access and distribute that's incredibly valuable so yeah it'd be a massive cost and i don't think we're quite there yet in terms of i think we're probably a cycle or a cycle and a half away from that being something that we could possibly be uh, looking at it would very much be the way as well compared to other broadcasters they're well known for the sort of closed loop system integrating their hardware and their software together and so good uh, succession reference there i look forward to that um when i get there but um but you, but that sort of the idea of end-to-end control over their products and what they're offering very much suits apple's history very much suits their brand and going down that centralized route you could see great value from a consumer perspective as well as you would from just from the the property's point of view and eddie q is quite kind of opening what you were saying sam which is basically they've got their best engineers um from across the globe working on these products so it doesn't make sense to be doing piecemeal to bring in various elements that 
need to be you know like lower cost of acquisition but lower cost of maintenance as well it's the idea that if apple's sort of standard of excellence that it prides itself on and has built a brand around if you're going to bring that into the sports world it requires a, a huge investment from the technological point of view as well as from the rights acquisition side so it does seem to make sense and it would seem that apple's probably best placed and most naturally aligned to take that approach rather than like a Disney or an ESPN or some of the other broadcasters and platforms that you mentioned, Tom. Yeah, you're probably right. As Sam said, like 50% of, of mobile devices, like that's, it's, it's not 50% everywhere, but it's pretty high in most places. Yeah. So you've like, you've got a, a direct line into notifications of like Premier League is now available in your country. Yeah. Uh, click on this button and pay us some money and you can watch it. That seems too obvious almost. Did you ever see Apple stumping up the, the sort of 12 plus billion that you're both hosting for it? I want big and bold predictions here. I don't, want to I, like, sit, I, I, I don't think it would be way more than 12 billion without sort of knowing the exact details of it. I can say a, a proper fee, but like you, if, if 12 billion is what they get now, then they expect that to go up. And you're asking, you know, and you're giving all of it to one person, you're saying, here's it exclusively, then like, just sort of. Like basic economics would say it's got to be three, four, five, six billion more than that to, for, for that level of deal, I think. And then you get the revenue share on top of it as well and all of that kind of stuff. Apple, Amazon, both capable of doing it. Something posited to me a few years ago as being an option is like someone like Amazon could buy not just like the broadcast rights, but like all of the sponsorship and all of the boardings and all that kind of stuff. They could do it all. You sell us everything and like, will they, will they market, out, market it out? So yeah, like it's, it's a thing. It's one of the reasons, it's one of the reasons why Sports Pro has been successful as we talk about this all the time <laughs> as an OTT thing. But like, it's just becoming, I feel like it's becoming more and more inevitable and you can see how it's working. Like, like the MLS Apple deal is the first major example of it, but that's a minor property. The Premier League is a major property. It's not quite yet, but it's becoming more of a realistic proposition. Completely agree. A couple of other stories that I wanted to fly through before we finish today. First being Wasserman acquiring CSN or um, entering a definitive purchase agreement to acquire CSN Sport Entertainment. Firstly, what is a definitive purchase agreement and why has this step been taken by Wasserman? Well, I mean, the definitive purchase agreement is pretty much what it says on the tin. Like, they've agreed the deal in principle. It's all there. It just needs to be signed off. The, the why is... Otherwise, kind of more interesting, I think. It's been a kind of period of consolidation for the agency sector. And like we, we've seen this with, with Wasserman. They've brought up various different agencies all over the place recently. They've launched in Spain. But it's not just them. Uh, obviously, Endeavor has been actively buying up companies as well. CAA is reported to be in talks over a sale. These big media companies which control a lot of things, not just athletes' contracts, but properties as well, or negotiate those kind of deals. Those kind of levels of intermediaries are becoming more valuable again after a period maybe where that maybe that wasn't so much the case, but the big ones are rising to the top again after a, a few years. And Wasserman has been slowly building up to that point, and this is, I think, part of that. In terms of like what Wasserman are actually getting at this deal in particular, there's some interesting clients they're getting their hands on. There's a sort of quite a lot of like crossover between Wasserman and csm in terms of their parent companies as well providence equity partners is a common shareholder in csm's current owner chime communications and providence has stake in, in csm as well so in terms of just bringing those investments together it, it makes sense from from that angle yeah i just add that wasserman's kind of been on a bit of an acquisition spree of late anyway and while it's a globally renowned agency but its presence maybe isn't so 
heavy here in Europe and in the UK. So sort of CSM, acquiring CSM does that for them. But on a more granular scale, it's quite interesting seeing all this consolidation going on because I think a lot of these bigger agencies seeing it as a, you know, it's an easier way for them to expand into new markets, to expand into new areas quite like on a much sort of smaller scale. I spoke to Octagon a couple of months ago when they acquired a rugby agency, for example, and they said the conversation for that actually started with them just wanting to recruit a head of rugby. And once they identified the head of rugby that they wanted to acquire, they just decided to acquire the agency that he worked for. So it's kind of a way of, rather than sort of starting a whole thing from scratch, just sort of bringing in a, a smaller operation, then it's in essence becomes your own in-house division but it's a way of sort of speeding up that process at a higher cost, of course. But um, it's sort of an interesting way of going about it. But it sort of it makes you wonder a little bit about the future of, I guess, like, you know, the sort of boutique agency, the sort of the specialist agencies out there that are set up for a specific purpose. Because, you know, companies like Wasserman, like CAA, that Tom reference, like Endeavor, they've got significantly more resources behind them if they are kind of on this acquisition spree at the moment and you feel you know the future of those boutique agencies might be as part of basically a, a smaller slice for a bigger pie basically mm. it'll be interesting to see when that deal is finalized with what the what the terms are what the financial details are i know that it's expected to close in q3 of this year um 2023 but no details have really been released as far as i can see in terms of the cost um and what the that integration looks like um so one to keep an eye on the final story that i wanted to get your perspective on i'll start with you sam is the commonwealth games and victoria state premier daniel andrews Victoria State, of course, being the host, Victoria State have pulled out from hosting, saying the budget has nearly tripled from original $2.25 billion Aussie dollars. And uh, he was pretty scathing, actually, and pretty forthright when he made the announcement saying, I've made a lot of difficult decisions in this job, but this is not one of them. So what's your perspective on I mean, the news, but also the future of the Games, given this is the second pretty damaging host city withdrawal from the past two editions? Yeah, but those comments from Daniel Andrews were pretty unforgettable, really. And I think the CGF, the Commonwealth Games Federation, said they were given some like eight hours notice before the announcement, which perhaps isn't very fair, but that's, it is what it is, I suppose. But yeah, it was kind of, as I say, it was out of the blue for the CGF, so it was obviously quite out of the blue for the rest of us. There wasn't, um, it didn't feel like there was much of an income that was coming. So yeah, I think it's a surprising announcement kind of in the way it came out but not that surprising in the sense that just kind of feeds into this wider narrative about the the relevance of the commonwealth games and whether it's fit for purpose in in the modern era daniel andrews himself said that they'd initially the the budget for the games had estimated to be around 2.6 billion australian dollars and he said that tripled um so that's just entirely unsustainable and i think you get to a stage now where the commonwealth games is ultimately it's pretty much a second tier event, but it's got a tier one cost. Damning indictment. Well, let's, well, let's, let's basically like the event has the event is essentially it's, it's a close off event. There's only sort of fifty six nations that compete in it that are part of the Commonwealth, and for the last sort of twenty years, it's hopped between the UK and Australia, 
testing it with the exception. I think the only exception was Delhi in 2010. It's the only place outside of the UK and Australia that's hosted the event since Malaysia in 1998. So they were going to run out of Australia and the UK cities eventually, weren't they? So that just doesn't really seem like a particularly sustainable way of running what's meant to be a sort of global multi-sport event. Queensland has come out and said that the Gold Coast, the 2018, isn't going to take it on. Um, but brought themselves out of posting it again. Spokesperson for the, for the Mayor of London said that, you know, they might be able to step in. But I think when you've got, you know, Victoria in Australia, a country that has a really strong recent track record of hosting major events, is slated to host Rugby World Cup, um, the Olympics in the next few years, when they're coming out and it's unsustainable, then that's a pretty telltale sign that you need to rethink what you're doing. I know the CGF has tried to do that over the past few years under their new CEO, Katie Stadler. Um, they rolled out like a new hosting strategy, which was essentially meant to give hosts more of a say over the sporting program um, so that they could kind of, you know, manage the budget a little bit better and sort of decide which sort of audience they wanted to go after. But clearly that's only gone so far. I think the fact that Victoria is pulling out you might get a replacement for 2026, but even if there is a replacement, I still feel like the event itself is is on borrowed time because this conversation isn't going away. And unless something significant changes, then unfortunately it kind of will be something that fades. Yeah, Tom, I was going to throw an evolution of that to you as an easy final question of the poll. But um, I know the CGF has said that they're committed to finding a solution for, for the Games in 2026, but what do you think that the future's looking like and do you think we'll still be seeing the Commonwealth Games in 2030 and beyond? I don't know why you would. Like it's it's a it's a terrible like it's a, it's a terrible concept. It's a it's an event that's like you can tell it, we're not sponsored by the Commonwealth Games, can't you? It's a like as a, as a, like think about it. Twenty twenty three. It's a, a sporting event where athletics is the main pillar without the the biggest force in track and field, the US. That just simply doesn't work. Like yes, it's interesting to watch British athletes compete for the Isle of Man and Scotland and Wales, and it's a Decent testing field for for them against Australia and South Africa and like and the Caribbean nations, which are obviously very strong in athletics. But without your biggest player, like and the second like and the second biggest player in terms of that population, China, like it's got very limited and low ceiling on what you can achieve. Like it's a very ambitious game. Multi sport is notoriously hard to do. We've seen that with the European Games here, and one where you're kind of you're almost global, but you're not quite and it's tied to something which is quite antiquated and not very popular in the Commonwealth, then it's just a hard sell. It hadn't really like, dawned on me that like none of the hosts had been anywhere apart from the UK or Australia since, with the exception of Delhi in 2010, since so 98. And Delhi was, as far as I'm aware, like a pretty major flop in terms of like engagement in the event itself. So it, like India's clearly not interested in stepping back up to do this. Canada clearly doesn't want to be a part of it either, despite the fact that it's more than capable of hosting something like this. So yeah, I think the future is very bleak for the Commonwealth Games. And I wouldn't be that surprised to see it kind of collapse completely. The thing is as well, a lot of that doesn't only apply to the Commonwealth Games. You can sort of say this model is kind of just relates to the entire ecosystem of big events. I mean, like the Olympics survive was probably because it's the Olympics and someone at some point will say, yeah, we'll host it. But if you look at if you look at recent kind of attempts by the IOC to find a host for, for Olympic Games, you know, 2024 and 28 were awarded at the same time because the only candidates were LA and Paris, 2032, Brisbane's the it's pretty much the only candidate. You've had lots of 
prospective hosts pulling out because they've had loads of backlash from the public because when you're sort of thinking about who these events are for, that's kind of, that always comes back to that question, like who, who are these events for? How much benefit do these events leave behind? And I think recent editions of the Olympics and other major events have shown not very much, to be honest. Like you talk about the financial cost of hosting the Olympics, of hosting FIFA World Cup even, the way the world's kind of changing now, you also have to think about the social cost, you have to think about the environmental cost. And far too often, that's kind of just a footnote, I think, in a lot of these hosting proposals, whereas in reality, they need to be sort of front and center of a lot of these bids now. And we're pretty much at a stage where the only interest you're getting is from countries like Saudi Arabia, from countries like Qatar, who always seem to come back to at the moment, but they're essentially the countries who have a bottomless pit of money and as the Qatar World Cup showed, aren't necessarily concerned about the social cost and the environmental cost of, of hosting these events. And they're certainly not worried about the financial cost either. So I think ultimately, sure, this particular situation relates to the Commonwealth Games, but the business of big events generally and the model of how they're hosted and how they're run just needs to be completely rethought if they're sort of going to be sustainable for years to come. I sort of think the Winter Olympics is the next domino that could fall. It's a major event costs a lot of money very limited pool of places that can actually host it there's been a real lack of interest in that in recent years we've seen a load of people pull out of that i think it will probably carry on for a little while but that's probably a prime candidate for a form in terms of how that's organized and what that looks like in in the next couple of hosting cycles so yeah commonwealth games could well go winter olympics i wouldn't be surprised if it was to follow in the next 20 years or so well, we did get our, our bold predictions in the end but uh on that sobering note i think um we'll, we'll call it a day for today's um pod sam and tom as always uh, a pleasure chatting to you i'm off this weekend to singapore for our APAC conference. So we will be reporting live on the floor from Sportswear APAC next week before I have a two-week hiatus from the pod. So, Tom, I'll leave her in your good hands until then. Thanks, George. Cheers, George. Enjoy Singapore.